I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 51 in the series, The Gospel of Matthew. Jesus constantly frustrated the religious leaders of his time and place by challenging their legalistic adherence to the scriptures. Today, Jesus frustrates his modern-day disciples by challenging any hesitation to take the scriptures seriously. And I actually uh, grew up in Savannah, Georgia. If you don't know this about me, at least that's what I have told people outside of Georgia for most of my life. Uh, When I traveled as a musician and people asked where I was from, I would say reflexively, Savannah, Georgia. But it's not really true. Um, I grew up in a town called Guyton, Georgia. This is what I told people when pressed. You know, Guyton is a small rural town about 30 miles away from Savannah, population, at least I checked in the late 80s and early 90s, was around 700. Um, No one knew where Guyton was, so I said Savannah, which is the next biggest, most recognizable city. I'm actually from Guyton, I would say, when pressed. But this wasn't technically true. I actually grew up in a township of Guyton uh, called Marlowe. Uh, Marlowe had no paved roads, no traffic lights. I think there were two businesses there, population 30, I don't know. Um, here is one of those businesses. It's called Smitty's. Uh, it's still there. My mom still shops here, buys honey buns, I think is what I heard. Um, there was a service and repair shop in Marlowe next to my house, but it closed down when I was a kid. It's still sitting there to this day. I checked it out. There it is. Um, And I was raised going to church in this world. Uh, And since I was having a blast on the Google image search, here is that church. (laughs) That's it. I think like last week or something. So at this church, my mom taught Sunday school. She led women's ministry. She sang in the choir. My dad was a deacon. And since we were Southern Baptists, he was uh, on about 15 different committees. And we used to tell jokes about ourselves, uh, like how many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? change. And then the other one was, um, (laughs) wow, these are bad. This is like the kind of jokes that we would tell in our church. Or we'd say like, how many Southern Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? And then be like, well, at least a dozen. You need one to actually change it. And then you need the others to sit in committee and discuss how good and important the old light bulb truly was and lament the scandal of abandoning sacred tradition and fret over the declining state of the church that would so readily throw out the old in favor of the new, all that stuff. And uh, these were, I thought they were funny at the time, but they made light of what was actually a serious situation. I was in the middle of all this just losing my mind. Like I am wired to a fault to get itchy at the mere suggestion of like groupthink or the herd mentality or enforced traditionalism of everyone being made to do something just because. So as a kid growing up in the deep south, uh, my dad would say things to me like, well, you never, you know, never wear a hat inside because it's rude. And I would ask, who says? And why should I care? Um, in high school, our uh, school flag was the Confederate flag. We were the Effingham County Rebels. So I made a T-shirt of the, Effie, of the uh, Confederate flag burning, and I wrote on <laughs> a heritage of hatred and wore it to the pep rally. Um, <laughs> And it, this is a true story, it instigated a small race riot. Uh, The local news showed up to cover it. Um, I had to be escorted to my car, which is actually a van, 
by my black friends at the end of the day so the rednecks wouldn't kill me. So this personality in a severely traditional, hyper-fundamentalist conservative paradigm is a combustible recipe. And it was both good and bad because like Jesus, I had a kind of built-in aversion to tradition for tradition's sake. But unlike Jesus, I had a strong disdain for even the idea of tradition. And finding the balance between those poles is a, a really difficult thing, but that's exactly what Jesus expects of his disciples. So turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15. We've been making our way line by line through this first century of biography of Jesus of Nazareth called Matthew, uh, named after the author, of course, after two years we're a little more than halfway through the book. Um, that's because uh, we take the Bible and the teachings of Jesus very seriously. We believe they deserve our attention and our hard work. We've been hard at work integrating spiritual disciplines from the life of Jesus into the life of our church along the way, which requires a lot of pit stops. And we're going to keep at it. So there's a lot of ground to cover tonight. You guys up for it? You all right? Oh, a woo. How exciting. That's so rare. Who did it? I want to prioritize you as a friend. But... Alexi, oh, then never mind. She's like, we're already friends. <laughs> that was great. Thank you. Now I'm excited. All right, let's get to work. Matthew chapter 15, verse 1. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. So in context, this is actually a really serious visit. The religious leaders who are a big deal, if you know the story, they come all the way from Jerusalem, which in this part of the story is kind of far away, to seek out this Jesus character, causing all this stir, this controversy, lots of hubbub. And the language they use to question Jesus is actually pretty strong. One scholar translates their attack, and I quote, Why in the world are your disciples breaking the precious heritage of our ancestors? So in the first century, devoted Jewish people practiced ritual hand-washing before eating. It had nothing to do with germophobia or hygiene at all, really, but this concept of holiness. Now, the whole thing is about as far removed from our cultural context as you can get. So bear with me. Let's try to wrap our, our heads around this a little bit. In the story of the Bible... The whole world has been wrecked by the rebellion of both human beings and spiritual beings, what we call sin, which is just a way of saying something that misses the mark of God's ideal, has wrecked things. So God wants to fix things. He selects for himself a people, Israel, and he tells them, hey, it'll be through you guys that I repair the world, set things to right, communicate the goodness of how things should be. So then you get this weird book called Leviticus. And in it, Israel receives from God a set of guidelines for maintaining holiness. Now, when most of us hear the word holiness, we tend to think of like upright morality. Like being holy means being so well behaved. And while morality is, is an aspect of holiness, that's not the primary idea. The Bible describes God as holy because the word literally means uh, unique or set apart. There's no one like God. He's different from everyone and from everything. But holiness also means dedicated to. So for Israel, becoming holy means sharing in the uniqueness of God as a gesture of dedication to God, being set apart as a dedication to God. So in Leviticus, you get something called purity laws. And the idea was that because God's presence 
burns away impurity. If an Israelite steps into God's presence in a state of impurity, it could be dangerous for them. Not sinful or wrong per se, but dangerous. So you get all these laws about how to become pure if you come into contact with things that represent death, like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids and fungus. Look it up. It's interesting. Again, Accidentally touching the skin of someone who has a disease or an animal carcass isn't sinful in and of itself, but the idea is that an Israelite must learn to take the presence of God very, very seriously. So if they come into contact with something that was associated with death, impure things, they'd have to do things like wait a few days, bathe, offer a sacrifice, things like that, and then they'd be pure again and they'd be good to go. Now, the practice of hand washing was developed later by the Pharisees, not strictly or specifically taught by the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, The Pharisees, who were the respected religious leaders of Jesus' day, developed this as an outward gesture of their love of the Hebrew Scriptures. So the idea being like, no, we don't have to specifically, but maybe we touch something impure without even knowing it. So by washing their hands before eating, they emulated this kind of mini purity ritual as a way to say, listen, just in case. I take the Torah so seriously that I don't want anything to compromise my purity before God. So the hand washing was both like a precaution and a message to onlookers that said, I love the Bible. Now, not every Jewish person, from what we can tell, honored the hand-washing tradition, nor were they expected to do so, really. But the Pharisees are calling Jesus and his apprentices to a higher standard, their standard. And sure, it's easy to kind of dismiss this kind of thing as a, a religious pretense, but there is a note of something admirable in it as well. Now, Jesus was a rabbi. He's a Bible teacher. He taught and kept the Torah. He would have been, uh, in these ways, very similar to the Pharisees. We tend to think of them as like antagonist and protagonist relationship, but they actually have a lot in common. And for whatever reason, these guys know that Jesus' disciples do not uphold the Pharisaical tradition of hand washing. It seems as though Jesus himself does it because he doesn't get mentioned. They just pick on his disciples. So they're offended and they ask, why don't you have your students wash their hands as well? Look what happens. Verse three, Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Okay, so pause for a moment. Here's what's going on with all that. First, let's get this uh, out of the way. When Jesus says word of God, he's not actually talking about the Bible. In fact, all throughout the scriptures, the term word of God rarely, if ever, refers to the Bible itself. Instead, the word of God typically just refers to something God has spoken in one way or another, which may or may not be the Bible, depending on the context. Later, John in the New Testament calls Jesus himself the word. Today, Christians love to call the Bible the word, which kind of is and isn't accurate, depending on the context. But I digress. Either way, Jesus is about to talk about the Bible, even if he didn't mean it when he says the word. He's just talking about something that God has declared. Now, the fifth of the Ten Commandments is the requirement to honor one's father and mother, but the four commandments that precede it all have to do with honoring Yahweh, Israel's God. So because of this, and the very clear line that runs throughout the Bible, that commitment to God must surpass all other allegiances at all times, the Pharisaical tradition had been developed, uh, uh, they had developed an oath called Corban, 
The idea was basically that one could say to their parents, Corbin, meaning, which just means dedicated to the Lord. And this meant that from then on out, anything a son or daughter owed their parents or should do for their parents would be given to God instead. Now, such an oath could be made as a gesture of dedication to God. Like, I love God so much, he's getting everything, including what you are going to get. But it could also be made like because they were mad at their parents. Um, Since the latter was bound to happen, a rabbinic forum determined that once the vow got made, it could not be retracted no matter what, even when the child sobered up and was no longer mad at their parents. So if one's parents were in a kind of need, like financial or otherwise, their, their own children could beat that need, the vow rendered both the parents and the children helpless. There's even a recorded case I read about this week in which a man had taken the oath, excluded his father using the vow, and he had to resort to giving his courtyard away to a friend just so his dad could actually come to his grandson's wedding. So that it was enforced so uh, rigorously that they had to find ways around it once the oath was made. And Jesus is really ticked about it. He's provoked to outrage by the Pharisees. They come to him, they're indignant, they're in a tizzy over this whole hand-washing thing, and Jesus turns the argument in on them. And it's not because Jesus is this like uh, debate tactician. It's because Jesus was the most brilliant teacher who ever lived. He wields the moment as an instrument for maximum teaching impact. And this is a teaching about tradition versus the scriptures. Now, Jesus has a ridiculously high view of the scriptures. If you think back to Jesus' kingdom manifesto, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, the whole thing kicks off with Jesus' thoughts on the Bible. He says that he does not come to abolish or throw out the Hebrew scriptures, but to fulfill them. Jesus doesn't throw them out. He draws our attention to the heart of God behind Israel's history of laws and regulations. So, for example, the law says specifically, don't kill people, which seems like sound advice. But Jesus says that's not enough. To truly live at peace with one another, to truly meet the heart of God, you have to reject not just murder, but anger as well. You have to forgive one another, repair relationships, abolish anger, love your enemies. It's not enough to just not kill people. So the same spirit is at work here in Jesus' critique of the religious leaders. What, what good is it to honor the letter of the law, even if it seems admirable, if you fail to truly love God and other people in the process? Now, of course, if you push this too far, things start to break down, but we'll talk more about that in a bit. So here Jesus is asking, what good is an oath of total dedication to God that victimizes those in need? So he goes off on them. Look at verse 7. Here comes the name calling. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. That word uh, hypocrites can be translated phonies. Literally, the word means actor, someone who pretends to be someone they are not. So here, Jesus is using it as a pointed insult. You phonies, you fakes. And here, scholars argue that Jesus' accusation against the Pharisees has less to do with their behavior itself than it does with their faulty interpretation of the Scriptures. It's not just that they're doing something that's off. It's that they're using the Scriptures to do it and how that affects the way that they live. Now, watch how he turns the argument into a teaching moment. Verse 10. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand, what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. So Jesus announces that the hand-washing tradition is ultimately unimportant because true defilement originates elsewhere, not on stuff on your hands. Now, try and imagine this for, for a second. Whether you're the religious leaders in the story or the Jewish crowd standing by, 
you know good and well that the thoroughly developed tradition handed down by generations of Israel taught strict dietary laws. And the language was, uh, shall we say, explicit. Look at this example. Every creature that moves along the ground is to be regarded as unclean. It is not to be eaten. You are not to eat any creature that moves along the ground. Whether it moves on its belly or walks on all fours or on many feet, it is unclean. Do not defile yourselves by any of these creatures. Do not make yourselves unclean by means of them or be made unclean by them. I am Yahweh God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. I am Yahweh who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy or unique, set apart because I am holy, unique, set apart. Now, uh, ancient Hebrew doesn't have italics or underlining or capital letters. So if you want to emphasize something, you repeat it. If you really want to emphasize it, you repeat it several times. And there are all sorts of unclean animals in the Torah. The pigs, for example, is the most obvious or most well-known, rather. Rabbits are on the list. Shellfish are up there. Bats, camels, chameleons, eagles, ferrets, uh, frogs. Don't eat them! You know, it goes several times, do not eat them. And it's written into Israel's history all the way back to Moses. And in a single moment, and in a moment that's otherwise not even to do with any of this, Jesus turns to a crowd and says, what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. So I imagine the crowds would be like, Excuse me, Rabbi, <laughs> say again. Now, uh, a bit about our place and all this. The gospel authors understood this moment as the decisive ending to the dietary laws of Leviticus. Mark actually says so point blank in his biography. He adds the line, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Can Jesus do that? Can he just veto a Le Leviticus 11 like that? Uh, well, to understand what's happening here, let's do a, a rapid fire uh, context thing with the meta narrative of the Bible and I think a helpful analogy in tow. So remember, the Bible is a story about God's work rescuing humanity and the entire creation itself from the destruction of sin and evil and evil forces of darkness led by the devil. Now to do that, to rescue humanity and creation, God desires a people who will live a beautifully unique way that will reflect God to the world and bring all of humanity into the gracious reign of God's good kingdom. But if you know the story, um, Abram, the gentleman selected by God to begin the project, his ancestors, not unlike the very first people, they all say, no thanks, most of the time anyway. So God eventually says, look, if you won't live my beautiful vision, let me spell it out for you. And in Exodus, Israel is given the law. Now understand, the law itself is not the vision. It is a means of directing Israel back to that vision. Think of it this way. Uh, both my kids love to play outside. They prefer it. It's unfortunate for me. Abby likes it. I just sit, you know, under a black umbrella out there or whatever. So <laughs> given the choice, <laughs> I don't really. Given the choice, unless, I, I guess I could. I have one. Given the choice... My kids will always favor the outdoors. If it's not, even when it is raining, frankly, they would favor the outdoors. And since they're small children, they wander into the road eventually. Uh, and the street's not that busy, but still, you don't want them doing that. So though outside is good, inherently good, it comes with a certain set of necessary safety precautions. Now imagine I permit my kids an open license, enjoy their time outdoors, 
only some verbal instructions as to how one avoids death in the process. You know, like, just don't go out there, but you can do this. And then predictably, one of them wanders right into the road. Immediately would follow the institution of more specific parameters. You must play within this area of the front yard, and that's it. But even with guidelines established, they wander beyond the yard again. Now, we would have to head for a small, decidedly less fun, fenced-in area of the backyard. Now, I want my kids to enjoy the outdoors. The, the vision was for them to enjoy the outdoors, but the version we're left with is not what I nor they really had in mind. Now, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, what's often thought of as the law, is like that fenced-in area in the backyard. Jesus is saying, listen, I'm not saying I want to destroy the fenced-in area. What I am saying is that we can do even better, and here's how. So no, we as modern disciples of Jesus don't obey Levitical law as disciples of Jesus, um, not because Jesus abolished the Levitical law, but because he is leading us back to the heart behind God's original vision for human flourishing. So when we read it today, some of the law looks more like God kind of entering into Israel's context and their brokenness to establish restrictions and boundaries, and it sounds very strange to us. Other parts of the law still look more like the familiar heart of God that you see throughout the Bible, and it's still very plain and makes a lot of sense. But we don't get to decide which is which. We use the rest of the Bible, in particular the teachings of Jesus, which some scholars call the canon within the canon, to do that. Meaning, we don't sort through the Hebrew Scriptures and say, I like this part, um, this part not so much. We use the entirety of the Scriptures to build out a robust paradigm for life in the kingdom of God. Now, about what Jesus is saying here tonight specifically. We've already learned back in chapter 12 the tremendous urgency that Jesus places on controlling the tongue when he said this doozy. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. So that's great. Yikes. So Jesus is knowingly revealing the heart of Scripture that what you do and what you say in particular is more toxic than what you eat. But understand, none of that would have made what Jesus said at the time any less shocking or derisive to his audience. So look what happens next. Verse 12, Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? And he replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both fall into a pit. <laughs> Which is like, wow. Again, Jesus is being very punk rock. Think about it. One can actually sympathize with the offense of the Pharisees. I, I think it makes a ton of sense. With one incendiary statement, Jesus has blown a hole in the Pharisees' precious scripture and in their arguably even more precious heritage or tradition. So it seems like the disciples are kind of like, dude, that was intense. Should you, I don't know, maybe clarify and try to smooth this over? These guys are really upset. And Jesus refuses to back down which is another fascinating reveal in the personality of Jesus, who is often, if you know the story, he's often very sensitive and compassionate and gentle, even with people who are caught in the wrong. Think of the woman caught in adultery and brought to Jesus or the woman at the well who had lots of husbands and a new boyfriend or 
Matthew, the tax collector who was working for the oppressor. In those stories, Jesus is gentle and kind and patient and even, in a sense, subtle. And elsewhere, Jesus is even sensitive with the Pharisees. If you know the story of Peter asking Jesus about the temple tax, which we'll get to in chapter 17 one day, maybe, Jesus acknowledges that he, does, he doesn't have to pay it, but he says to Peter, and I quote, but so that we may not cause offense. And then he pays it anyway. But elsewhere, like here, Jesus deliberately generates controversy and then he wields it as a teaching tool. He says and does things that are clearly designed to provoke his audience. Sometimes he explains himself and sometimes he doesn't, even when they ask. One older theologian I read this week called Jesus the rock of offense. He said that, and I quote, Christ would have to be buried if we wanted to satisfy the stubbornness of everyone. Meaning, we can't possibly create a universally inoffensive Jesus. This is so pressing for us in a moment of cultural hypersensitivity. We are being infantilized, uh, taught new modes of fragility on a daily basis, bombarded with hostile groupthink that wants desperately to seek out new ways of being offended and outraged by anything and everything that does not conform to the herd mentality. There are only rights and wrongs, right side and wrong side of history, us and them. And any slip of the tongue or mistake or social media update from decades ago or whatever it might be will throw you over the wall that separates the enlightened from the detestable. And on the other side of that wall are the deliberate trolls, you know, the angry, embittered, backward-thinking mob who enjoy nothing more than frustrating those who claim to be woke or whatever. And yet again, as always, Jesus operates in neither sphere. Instead, he embodies a frustrating center. Jesus is neither afraid of controversy and offense, nor is he dependent on either one of them. He is sensitive and gentle, and then he's outrageous and offensive, both in equal measure depending on a given situation. So he tells the disciples, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They're like blind guides. And this is a stark and simple word on judgment, which is a concept unappealing to the modern sensibility, but something Jesus addresses often. And Jesus is hearkening back to his own word imagery of the seeds, the parable of the seeds and the sowers, so saying that everyone not rooted in the kingdom of God will be judged. So the disciples are like, dang, this is intense. And they probe further. Keep reading uh, verse 15. Peter said, explain the parable to us, which I think is hilarious. All the commentators know that like there hasn't really been a parable at this point, but it's so baffling that Peter's like, well, is this one of your riddle things? Can you explain it? And Jesus goes on, look, verse 16. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body. But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. So, uh, Jesus seems a bit exasperated. He explains anyway. And there's actually a kind of crass note to his explanation. When Jesus mentions whatever goes into the stomach and then out of the body, he's deliberately conjuring up an image of human excrement. Sorry. And then he turns the image around and says, but the true excrement is what flows up from the heart and then comes out of the mouth. 
murder, adultery, sexual immorality, and the list goes on. You see the intensity and the grossness of the image? One commentator wrote about this uh, passage, the filth of the toilet is not so great as that of the human heart not yet cleansed. And again, particularly pressing for us in an ideological culture of do what makes you happy. In our culture, the feelings of the individual are at the apex of human consideration. Follow your heart, you know, your own truth or whatever. And here you have Jesus saying, the human heart is overflowing with sewage. You don't need to eat something to be corrupted. Just look inside. It's like the, uh, the reverse of the Dumbo's magic feather thing. Instead of like, hey, you never needed this magic feather. The magic was inside you. Jesus is saying, you don't need to eat something to be corrupted. You already are. And, and there's a point. Jesus is saying that eating all the right foods, abstaining from all the wrong foods, following tradition to the letter of the law will never renovate the human heart. True, lasting kingdom change comes from reordering the heart through Jesus, not the diet or the adherence to strict principles of tradition. And really, that Jesus would go off like this is hardly unprovoked. You, you think about his work up until now, the guy has been constantly violating the purity laws. He touched a man with skin disease. He went into a territory filled with pigs and pagans. He was touched by a woman who was menstruating. He touched a dead body. He spoke with Gentiles. He hung out with sinners uh, and tax collectors almost constantly. And in each of those recorded instances, rather than the impurity of these people and things transferring to Jesus, the purity of Jesus transfers to them which is summed up here in Jesus' warning. True purity of the heart must come through Jesus, not through strict adherence to purity legislation. So tonight, I realize that was a lot of content. Tonight, I want to land here on the question of two uh, modern problems with the text, which is the lingering problem of tradition, something we still have to work out, and the lingering problem of the Bible itself. So let's start with tradition. A few of us are still dragging around the lingering consequences of traditionalism. And maybe you think you're not really affected by the fundamentalism of your upbringing, but you are, whether you realize it or not. If you grew up against a fundamentalist backdrop, if you were raised by a hyper-conservative family, if you come from a closed-off us-versus-them denomination or culture or context, um, then it has an effect on you, a lasting effect. I'm honestly shocked at how often I talk to uh, my Russian friends and find their stories are nearly identical to my stories of being raised in the Deep South. Different details, but near identical premises. Because when you spend significant time within a camp that has clearly defined borders, even if the camp is in some ways great, whether it's Southern Baptist or the Reformed tradition or Calvary Chapel or a single family unit, it's rare to be unaffected spending time in, in one of those closed-off camps. For some, it's like a lingering aversion to change, even if you don't articulate it exactly that way. It might be like a, a hypersensitivity or even fear of all things new. Everything is guilty until proven innocent if it doesn't fit a preconceived notion of your tradition. A while back, I was invited to teach at a church in Portland, and uh, when I'd finished my sermon stepped off stage, and I was immediately confronted by a young man who was visibly hostile. And uh, he told me that his entire family stormed out the moment I got on stage at the mere sight of me. And I was like, oh, man. <laughs> Jeez, this is a new one. 
And, uh, and then I was like, well, well, geez, what was it? And then he was like, of all things, it was tattoos. It seems odd because tattoos are beyond mundane nowadays. It's more unique not to have tattoos, really. But then this young man was like, could you not have le- at least have worn gloves to cover those up? And, uh, <laughs> and in that moment, the Spirit spoke to me, and I, I countered with a profound pastoral word. I said, how in the world would gloves not more, be more distracting than the guy gets up wearing the gloves? I think he would be suspect. You'd be like, what the heck? Now, that's an extreme example. Um, you might be surprised at how often I witness people prickle at the idea of change. Even those who imagine themselves open-minded and with it, everything guilty until proven innocent. And sometimes it's with good cause. Not every development is a good one. Not every new development is a good one. Certainly no new development should be accepted sight unseen without being weighed against the teachings of Jesus, the scriptures, the community of God's people, the Holy Spirit. But that intense wall can go up in our minds and it might be a sign of something dangerous. A few weeks ago, I read this great great quote from Preston Sprinkle when he described uh, fundamentalism like this. He says, conservative fundamentalism is the inability to humbly listen to the other side, the other tribe. Those you are told are the enemy. The posture of seeing the world in black and white, good people and bad people, and refusing to love your enemy. Progressive fundamentalism, see above. They're the exact same thing. Our concern for our own camp, our tradition, our side, our way of doing things can become blinders that impede us from the actual work of the kingdom of God. But... All that said, I venture a guess that some of us struggle less with traditionalism, less with fundamentalism, as we do with our aversion to those things. And this is a problem because if you follow Jesus, you belong to a tradition. And that tradition is informed by the Bible. And it seems like I'm constantly having conversations with people who would very much like to loosen their grip on the Bible and relent and be carried away by the warm and violent current of the culture. So they tell me things like, yeah, yeah, I know what it says, but I just don't feel like that could be true. And I'm answering, okay, well, I mean, be that as it may. Here are the scriptures. What do you think about them? Yes, we approach them thoughtfully with nuance and work and study, but here they are. What do you think about them? Are you building out a discipleship that can submit to the authority of Jesus when everything around you claws and clamors at your dangling heels waiting to pull you in? One scholar wrote of tonight's passage, Worship is useless, Isaiah and Jesus remind us, when the worshiping community derives its teaching from its own best opinions rather from God, than from God's better word. I read this week about um, a, a report that was published in 1989 chronicling the result of an ongoing conversation between American Southern Baptists and Catholics of all things. And one journalist wrote of the findings, uh, the report notes that Baptists, while valuing past tradition and understanding the Bible, say tradition must be tested by Scripture, while Catholics say interpretation of Scripture must be measured by tradition. But I would argue that both are very true. For those of us interested in the Bible at all, conversation surrounding it is typically divided into two broad camps. On the left, you have the uh, theologically liberal or progressive, it's not a political idea in theology, progressive if you like, which celebrates the Bible maybe as a work of literature with some neat stuff in for sure, but not as authoritative in any sense, not as holy scripture or however the church has described it throughout history. For them, The Bible is indeed a library of writings, but it's a very human one and little more. 
perhaps these human authors did enjoy some kind of encounter with God, whatever that means, and maybe they wrote about it, but God himself had little, if anything, to do with the writing of the book. And that view isn't new. It has its origins in Europe several centuries ago, Germany in particular. It eventually spread to America. It killed off entire denominations in the process. Today, the camp is obviously well represented. It continues to thrive in the world of like the jaded uh, former Christian kind of post-evangelical bloggers and social media personalities and podcast hosts and hip authors. It would be your Rachel Held Evans and liturgists and Rob Bell, Peter Enns, Marcus Borg. There's a long list of the, uh, the camp. Now, of course, the obvious critique of this position is that when we ourselves become the authorities over the Bible, when we pick and choose what to believe and how ourselves, then chances are the resultant Jesus is essentially little more than an imaginary figure of your own design. He likes what you like. He's irked by what irks you. His causes are your causes. He never bothers you at all. Um, how convenient, how comfortable. Now, the other camp over here on the right is an entirely different problem, but uh, often just as vexing. And it's something that we sometimes call biblicism or the idolatry of the Bible. Here, the Bible is understood completely as authoritative scripture, yes, but with absolutely no regard whatsoever for the Bible as literature. So consequently, the Bible becomes something like a Mormon artifact that fell from heaven on golden tablets. But all of us enter into the process of interpretation when we read the Bible. Most of us aren't fluent in ancient Greek or Hebrew, so we rely on other people to translate the very words of the text before we even get to them. And once there, we all bring our lenses with us, our own culture, our own context, our own stories and backgrounds and bents, and we read the Bible through them. It's very hard to get rid of them. So this view of the Bible itself as like, you know, the Father, Son, and Holy Bible thing eliminates the human side of things. The Bible was drafted by human authors, so that's a, a big problem. And though the church has always held that those authors were inspired by God's Spirit, it has never held that the Spirit put them into like a kind of trance and puppeteered them while they wrote. Instead, the personalities and the cultures and the context and the moods, even the quirks of the human authors are all left intact and abundantly obvious on the page. And this becomes a tremendous complication when one attempts to read the Bible as an entirely literal, linear, one-size-fits-all manual for life in the modern world. It just does not work. So submission, though it drags like a serrated blade against the fragile grain of the world in which you and I live, submission means stooping to tuck your own desires and inclinations beneath the greater desires and inclinations of the one whom we serve. No, it does not mean mindless, unquestioning, blind faith and service. I mean, just read the scriptures. God welcomes doubt. He welcomes frustration. He welcomes questions and wrestling with God himself for answers and clarity, and it ultimately, ultimately can lead to greater faith. But then, submission. And as much as it stands to challenge or even disrupt our comfort, Jesus affirms and celebrates and even reinforces the authority of the scriptures. And not just in this story, many times over in a great many ways throughout the story of Jesus. But Jesus does not affirm or celebrate or reinforce an unsophisticated, bare bones, black and white, letter of the law reading of the text that the religious leaders of his day taught, as do many conservative Christians today. And if we want to apprentice Jesus, if you want to follow Jesus, the Bible comes with him. On this, the whole of church history and scholarship are in uniform agreement. Andrew Wilson puts it this way, Our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ, 
I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him and I've decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. So all that to say, my pragmatic plea for this evening is a simple one. If, if you do indeed apprentice the rabbi known as Jesus of Nazareth, then in keeping with his strongly worded commands, read, know, value, and submit to the scriptures. Read them every single day if you're a disciple of Jesus, in particular the Gospels of Jesus. I think you should read every single day. Read in short bursts or read in long stretches. Read to wrestle and to question and un to unpack and probe and investigate while also submitting to the scripture's authority upon the command of Jesus, our teacher. I love this quote from J.R. Packer. He says that we are to read the Bible with an advanced commitment to receive his truth from God all that scripture is found on inspection actually to teach. So the left often neglects the first half. There's no advanced commitment to receive as truth the scriptures. But the right neglects the second half, the inspection to find out what the scriptures actually teach because it's not always black and white, not always on the surface. All of this hard work is balanced by the Spirit of God and the community of God's people. It doesn't happen in a, in a vacuum, in uh, isolation. The Spirit of God is alive and at work in every disciple of Jesus and in the disciples of Jesus around them. In John's Gospel in particular, Jesus himself promises, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So may we become a people who, like Jesus, embody a complicated center who submit to the authority of the scriptures while rejecting blind traditionalism for the sake of tradition itself. May we be informed, inspired, and compelled by our teacher and king, empowered by his spirit, led by the community of God's people, and informed by this library of writings that Jesus took so seriously. May we center ourselves on the greatest commandment of all, to love God and to love one another. And may we learn to do exactly that with all of its wonderful complexity and beauty and controversy, just like our rabbi and king, Jesus. Let's pray together and invite God's spirit to speak over us as we begin to worship again. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.